Well, good morning, everyone. If you would, go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to be in the book of Luke. That's right. Luke is preaching out of the book of Luke. It's happening. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. And because we're taking a break from Genesis and we're hopping right into the middle of the chapter here, I think it'll be helpful for us to take a brief look at some of the surrounding passages for some context. Because when we read our Bibles, we can't just go in blind, right? No, we need to understand what's going on around a passage in order to really understand the passage itself. So I want us to do this. I want us to comb through chapter 18 and pinpoint the underlying theme that Luke wants to bring to our attention. So let's do this together. We have two familiar parables and a very popular story preceding our text. The persistent widow, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and then the story of Jesus allowing the children to come to him. First, Luke tells us the parable about the persistent widow. And it goes like this. There's a widow who time and time again comes to an unrighteous judge asking for justice to be done against her adversary. And for a while, this unrighteous judge refuses to pronounce judgment properly. But because the widow keeps bothering him, he finally gives in. And the point of the story here, Jesus tells us, is that God, the righteous judge, will give justice to those who ask. But listen to this. At the end of this parable, in verse 8, Jesus asks, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith on earth? Then after that, Luke gives an account of Jesus giving another parable, this time about two men who go to the temple to pray. One man, who is a tax collector, goes to the temple and he doesn't even lift his eyes because he feels so unworthy. He prays, Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And the other man, who is a Pharisee, prays, Father, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. And Jesus, who places these two men side by side, is showing us the difference between real faith and the appearance of faith. We're told that the tax collector will go down to his house justified, but the Pharisee will not. So already with these two parables, we're starting to see the underlying theme that Luke is trying to make clear. He's showing us what faith looks like. Do you see that? Have faith like the persistent widow. Have faith like the tax collector and not the appearance of faith like the Pharisee. But Luke doesn't stop there. He gives one more story before the text we're going to look at today. The last bit of context. He tells of the children coming to Jesus. And in this story, Jesus tells the disciples who are trying to keep the children away from Jesus. He tells them, bring them to me. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Have faith. Like a child. So that's the context. Luke is writing this part of his gospel in order to show what true faith is. 
how we may obtain it, and what it means for our lives. So let's try to keep all that in mind as we study our text this morning. We'll read it, and then we'll pray together. This is verse 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you're a God who loves us and loves us so much that you've given us your word. We ask this morning we wouldn't take that for granted, but that we would approach your word with humble hearts, ready to receive it. We ask that you would speak through me this morning, Lord, that you would allow us to soak in these truths so that we may learn how to follow you better. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got three points for us this morning. Point number one, the interaction. Point number two, the impossible. And point number three, the inheritance. Point number one, the interaction. So let's set the scene a little bit. The story of the rich young ruler. We've got two characters right at the outset. One we know, Jesus, and one we don't know, the rich young ruler. We also know from Mark's account of this story that Jesus, along with his disciples, is about to set out for Jerusalem. So I want you to picture this with me. Jesus, as he's getting ready, probably packing up some things, starting to head out on the road, Luke writes that he's approached by a seemingly well-intentioned, wealthy young man. And he's asked a question. The most important question that any of us or anyone could ever ask. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, knowing his question before he asked it, answers him in a little bit of an interesting way. 
He breaks the young man's question down into two parts. And before explicitly responding to anything about eternal life, he focuses first on the way that he's been addressed. Good teacher. And he poses a question back to the ruler. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now why does Jesus do this? Why does he point out the fact that this young man called him good? What does this have to do with how to inherit eternal life? Well, I don't think that there's a very complicated answer here. If, if we remember how Jesus interacts with people. You see, Jesus never has just a surface level interaction with someone. That, that doesn't happen. Deep questions have deep answers. Yes, would it be convenient if Jesus answered our questions simply and we understood them immediately? Of course it would be. But that's not how it works. Think of Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees or the woman at the well or almost every conversation that he had with the disciples. Before revealing the answer to salvation, Jesus always reveals our need for it. And throughout this interaction, Jesus is diving into the rich young ruler's heart. And like a mirror being lifted in front of his face, Jesus is showing him his sin. What we see in verse 19 is just the start of that. By asking this question the way that he does, Jesus is showing the rich young ruler that he doesn't even understand who he's talking to. He's challenging him, saying, I know your heart. You're lost. You don't know me. You don't know my father. Your false faith may fool other people around you, but it doesn't fool me. You don't even know the weight, the weight of your question. But I'm still going to answer you. And because I love you, I'm going to make, make you painfully aware of who I am and your deep need for me. So Jesus does this. And as he continues to answer him, he starts to give him, him an answer that's probably closer to the one that he was expecting. But still, it's an answer that will show him a standard he has not met and cannot meet. The standard of the law. Jesus says, you know the commandments. What can you do to inherit eternal life? Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You want to earn eternal life? Obey the commandments perfectly. That's what Jesus tells him. And in the young man's response we're able to learn a lot more about his background and who he is. Because he says, all these, all these commandments, I've kept these for my youth. So we know that he's been well acquainted with the law and supposedly even kept the law from a young age. We know that he's probably a Pharisee and more than likely his ruler title is tied to this fact. He had some type of authority whether he was a ruler over a congregation, part of the Sanhedrin, which seems unlikely, some other type of teacher, we don't know, and we don't really have to know. If we did, then the Gospels would tell us, right? 
But because they don't, we just need to understand that this man was in some type of authority position, which is why he's so confident in answering Jesus the way that he does. All these I have kept from my youth. Now we know that this statement is not true. We know that it's not possible for him to have kept these commandments. And most of us probably scoff at the fact that he responded this way. I know that when I first took a look at his response, I was thinking to myself, the nerve of this guy, the absolute goal, he's telling Jesus, God, that he's kept all of his commandments. That's a bold move, my friend. I would never do that. Maybe not. But I probably would. I mean, think about it. Have we really never approached God in a similar way? Do we never look at somebody else's sin struggle and think to ourselves and boast in the fact that we've kept that command perfectly? Two things can be true at once. It's true that while this rich young ruler didn't keep these commands perfectly because that's impossible, it's also true that obedience in these areas seemed to come rather easy to him. The equivalent for us would be to think of areas in our life where we may be excelling in grace. You know, we can think, my prayer life's good right now. I'm spending time in God's word. Loving others comes really easy to me. I feel like I don't struggle with having patience with my spouse at all. I'm doing well in these areas. And listen, it's a good thing to meditate on evidence of God's grace in our lives. That's a very, very good thing. But be careful that that thankfulness doesn't turn into self-righteousness. Because a command that you've kept perfectly your whole life may be your biggest sin struggle tomorrow. So guard your heart against this. Don't let self-righteousness creep in. I gotta tell you, every time that I read this passage this week, I was just blown away by Jesus and who he is. Just the way that he interacts with this man. It blows my mind because it's so different than the way we would do it, or at least the way that I know I would do it. I mean, if this man came to me and told me that he's kept all of my commandments, if he looked me in the eyes the same way that he looked Jesus in the eyes, and he said, all these I've kept from my youth. You know what I would say to him? I would say, no, you haven't done that. You're wrong. I would be so angry. I would call him a liar. I know that much for sure. But that's not what Jesus does. No, Jesus puts that response almost to the side and says, you don't want to talk about those? That's fine. We don't have to talk about the way that you failed me there. Let's talk about the command you know you haven't kept. The command that no matter how hard you try to convince yourself you've kept, you know you haven't. The sin that you want to hide from everyone, 
the sin that you love more than you love me. Look at verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. I've got to imagine, if I'm the rich young ruler, now I'm shaking in my boots. Because the image that I wanted to portray to this man, it's not happening. Somehow, he knows my sin's secret and he's called me out on it. He knows my heart. He's looked into my soul. He knows that I'm not justified by everything that I'm doing and showing the world. Jesus loves this man. And that's why he shows him his sin. Not so that the young man can wallow in it, but so that he can be free of it. And he does the same thing for us. When you're sick and you don't know what's wrong, what do you do? You go to the doctor, hopefully. And the doctor diagnoses your sickness, but he doesn't stop there. He gives you what's hopefully good news. He gives you medicine so that you can feel better. A doctor doesn't ignore your sickness and send you on your merry way because that won't help you. And Jesus doesn't do that either. Jesus, like a good doctor, tells this man that he's sick. He's a sinner. He's not good like he thought he was. And the full weight of that information must bear down on him. But Jesus has the medicine. And he gladly tells him about it. But he doesn't want it. Look at verse 23. When he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. He didn't want to give up his money. Jesus tells him the greatest, most joyful news that anyone could ever hear, and this man walks away sad. Why? Well, to answer that question, we have to continue on. Point number two, the impossible. Look at verses 24 and 25. Luke writes, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Why is the ruler sad? Because the love of money is one of the greatest barriers a human being can have to entering the kingdom of God. His sadness is a testament to the weakness of our flesh and the sway that money can have on our lives. In order to illustrate this difficulty, Jesus talks about a camel going through the eye of a needle, which from what we know about camels and the size of needles, seems pretty difficult. It's impossible. Why is wealth such an obstacle for those who desire salvation? I think the answer is quite simple. Think about it. 
in order to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to give up everything. Everything in our lives. We have to be willing to put that to the side and say, I'm going to follow Jesus. And it's harder to give up more things than it is to give up fewer things. That's why it's more difficult. And I know that that's an oversimplification, but listen, we have to understand this at a basic level. When we have more possessions, we have more stuff stealing our attention and our affection, and that makes it more difficult to turn our affection and our attention towards Christ. Imagine a scenario in which a family has to move across the country for work, or maybe across the world for work. Which family is the move going to be easier for? A family who's lived in the same city for 30 years, or a family who's lived in the same city for three months? The family who put roots down, they're going to have to leave behind friends and relatives. You know, their children are going to have to find a different school. They won't be able to go to their favorite restaurants and so on, whatever else you can think of. They're going to have to leave everything behind. That family is going to have a lot of things in their rearview mirror. But the family who doesn't have any of that, the family that never really got settled in, well, it probably won't be that difficult for them at all. They don't really have much to leave behind. For them, all they have is what's ahead. The man in our text this morning looked around him, and he weighed his options. I can have everything in this life, or I can have life abundant with Christ. And he chose the former. We know how sad this is. When you put the two side by side, it seems so silly. How could anyone ever pick a comfortable life over life itself? But brothers and sisters, when it comes to our own lives and affections, do we not ever take on the same attitude? Does our commitment to living a comfortable life ever trump our faithfulness to God? Do we think about the next thing we're going to buy before we think about church members who may be in need or before we think about how we can support the ministry of the word? Can we say that we've done this perfectly? I know that I can't say that. God says that we cannot serve two masters. We, we will either hate one and love the other or we, we will be devoted to one and despise the other. And this applies to more things than just money. We cannot serve our career above God either or our social status above God or our possessions above God or our family above God. We cannot serve two masters. To do so would be idolatry. To love anything more than God is idolatry. And if you're sitting there thinking that you're not in danger of idolizing wealth and possessions because you don't make six figures a year, you're mistaken. The fact is that most of us in this room are richer than 90% of people throughout all of history. We all have stuff. And we can all be tempted to love that stuff more than we love God. We must be willing to lose everything for Christ. And we must strive 
to find all of our joy and all of our satisfaction and all of our security in him. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. What I'm not saying is that it's inherently bad for Christians to have wealth. I'm not preaching that because I don't think that the Bible preaches that. We see examples all throughout Scripture of godly men who had wealth. People like Solomon, Job, Abraham, David, the list could continue on. And I know for a fact that most of us could write a laundry list of godly brothers and sisters who have helped us or helped with the ministry of the word because they had the capacity and the opportunity to do so. I know that that's true in my life, and I know that it's true in the life of this church. Money is not evil. The love of money is. Possessions are not bad. Being possessed by them is. Which is why the Bible is so heavy with its warnings against it. And it's why Jesus says what he says here in Luke. When it comes to our wealth, I think that what Paul writes to Timothy should be the goal. This is 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That should be the goal. Be rich in good works. Be generous, ready to share, and take hold of that which is truly life. It's interesting how confused the disciples are about Jesus' illustration concerning the wealthy. Look at verse 26. It says, Those who heard it, that's the disciples, said, Then how, then who can be saved? They don't understand Jesus' illustration at all. Because in their minds, people who have wealth appear to be the most faithful the most blessed by God, and therefore among God's highly favored. And this is where we really start to see the underlying theme of faith that's been so prevalent in the rest of the chapter. This rich young ruler on the outside appears to be faithful to God. Most likely a Pharisee. He has authority. He's wealthy. He seems to keep the letter of the law decently. He looks like he's got a first-class ticket to heaven. If it's impossible for the wealthy person to be saved, then who's it possible for? That's what they're asking. But Jesus has shattered this facade. He's shown that this seemingly perfect individual has no true faith at all. And it's impossible for him to obtain it on his own. Verse 27, but he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 
Who can be saved? Whoever God saves. The Jew, the Gentile, the rich, the poor, the kid who grew up in Sunday school, and the adult who ran away from Christ until he was on his deathbed at 90. We can't obtain eternal life by appearing to have faith. It's not a gift that's given on merit. The only way that anyone can be saved is if the Lord works a miracle in their life and saves them by his grace. That's the only way that it's possible. Why do we know camels who have passed through the eye of a needle? Because God has granted them the gift of faith. And Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 2 that this is not because of any of our works so that no man may boast. All we have to do is repent, believe, and follow Jesus. So if you're not a Christian and you want to be, if you're worried if God has chosen you to give you faith or to not give you faith, here's the answer. Repent of your sins and believe that Jesus came to earth and he paid the penalty for sins that we couldn't pay and he rose again three days later. Follow him and receive the gift of faith. Receive the gift of salvation. Because what a good gift it is to be saved and brought into his kingdom. What we receive from him cannot be matched in this life by anything that sits under the sun. Point number three, the inheritance. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So what's our inheritance? Well, because we've been talking about wealth and possessions and all the rest, when we think of what Jesus promises we will receive in the age to come, we might think about our treasures in heaven. Now, it's true that we will receive treasures in heaven based on the way that we've served Christ in this life. That's a biblical idea, and it's certainly something that we as Christians should all look forward to. But it's not the inheritance that Jesus is talking about here in this passage. In this passage, Jesus refers to two things we will receive upon giving up everything to follow him. Eternal life and treasures in this life. Those are the two things that he, sa- that he says here. When Jesus says eternal life, he's not just talking about how we're going to live forever. That's not all that Jesus is trying to communicate here. No, when Jesus talks about eternal life, and guys, this is so glorious. He's talking about the forgiveness of sins, being restored alongside all of creation, being in his presence and dwelling with him forever. When we have eternal life, we get to live our lives as those who know God. 
We get to experience his goodness and his grace every day. That's the ultimate gift that Jesus can give us, the ultimate treasure, the greatest inheritance. We're saved from our sins and brought out of the darkness and into the light. Nothing is able to top that. That's eternal life. What's a little more misunderstood in this passage is when Jesus talks about treasures in this time. I'm referring to the beginning of verse 30 where Jesus says, who will not receive many times more in this time. This portion of our text is often misunderstood to be talking about worldly possessions that we'll inherit for sacrificing for Jesus. It's most common with the prosperity gospel preachers. You know, give $1,000 now and you, you will receive $4,000 later. Somehow, it'll show up in your pocket. You'll have a car in the driveway and somebody will knock on your door telling you that they've got a brand new house for you. And listen, if we wanted to do some gymnastics, we could really try to make this connection. We could say, oh, well, Jesus has been talking to this ruler about wealth. So obviously, he's referring to wealth here, too. That would not be a careful way to read and interpret the scripture at all. A more recent and more relevant example, more explicit example for what Jesus is referring to is what the disciples have given up to follow him and what Jesus says others will do to follow him. He says, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children who will not receive many times more in this time. How will these losses be recouped many times over in this life? When you lose a spouse because of your faith or your relationship with your children or with your parents or your siblings, your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, your friends, how will you recoup these losses? Through the church. The new family for the believer Now listen, I know that we're in America and I know that this doesn't happen here as often as it does in other parts of the world where if you become a Christian, your family disowns you, you're thrown out on the streets, you become an outcast to society and all that you have are other Christians. But I know that this still happens here in varying degrees. I know that many of us have lost relationships by following Christ. We've put it all on the line and we've experienced a real and true loss. And because I know that's true, I'm so thankful that God has given us the church. What are you, the Christian, supposed to do when you need help moving but your family just doesn't want to be around you? Will you call your church family? What do you do when you need to reshape your understanding of marriage because it's been wrecked by growing up in a broken home? You call a godly older couple in the church and you ask them to disciple you and they can be there for you in a way that your biological parents can't. What do you do when you're lonely and none of your friends want to hear you keep talking about the gospel? Well, you grab a brother and sister in Christ and you build a relationship that's centered around the gospel. 
when we lose because of our faith. We need to remember to lean on God and his church. And if we haven't lost, though in the future we very well might, we need to make sure to be the church for those who have. Fulfill the one another's. Be patient with one another. Bear with one another. Love one another as Christ has commanded. Because when we do these things, God is using us to be a gift for our brothers and sisters in Christ. The rich young ruler appeared to have faith, but he didn't. He thought that there was a way he could obtain it, but there wasn't. He was convinced that he wanted the promise of God, but in the end, he rejected it. So as we close, I want to ask you, where have you placed your faith? Where is your treasure? Is it in your works? Is it in your wealth? Do you cling to this life more than you cling to God? There is only one who is worthy of our faith and adoration. And there is only one who can give us that faith for life. And that's Christ. It's Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for sending your son to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, the one that we could not pay. And we thank you that through that, you have offered us a treasure that is greater than anything we could ever have or want in this life. Lord, we ask that you would help us remember this truth. We ask that we would give you all of the adoration and praise that you deserve. That we would not idolize the things of this world. but That we will find our joy and our security in you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.